You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Age of Napoleon. Episode 32, The Fate of Italy. Thanks for joining me. We left off last time in the fall of 1796. The besieged fortress city of Mantua remains the focus of our story. Austrian Field Marshal Dagobert von Wurmser had led two attempts to relieve Mantua. He had succeeded in reaching the city both times, but failed to actually break the siege. Now, Wurmser himself was trapped behind the walls, along with most of his field army. Conditions inside the city were getting desperate. There were now over 20,000 Austrian troops living on supplies meant for 10,000. But Vienna had not given up hope. Almost as soon as the gates of Mantua closed behind Wurmser's troops, the Austrians began organizing a new field army for a third attempt to relieve the city. That means it's time to meet Napoleon's next opponent, Field Marshal Baron Joseph Alvinci von Borberek. Alvinci was 61 years old. He was a Hungarian from Transylvania, the very furthest southeastern corner of the Habsburg Empire. Generations of his ancestors had been on the front lines of Austria's struggles against the Ottoman Empire. The Alvinci family was noble, but not particularly rich or powerful. They had little but their reputation, hard-won in service to the emperor. A pretty typical background for a pre-revolutionary European army officer. Joseph was groomed for military life from boyhood, and joined the army as a cadet at the age of 14. He fought through the Seven Years' War with distinction, rising quickly through the ranks. After the war, Alvinci became associated with the ascendant reform faction within the Austrian army, who sought to apply the lessons of the conflict in a bold program of modernization. In the 1770s, Alvinci was one of the heroes of the War of Bavarian Succession, which catapulted him into the upper echelons of the Austrian leadership. In 1790, he retired from active field service at the age of 55 to join the Imperial War Council, the 18th century Austrian equivalent of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. In mid-1796, the Habsburg military was in crisis. Belgium had been lost. Napoleon was running rings around their armies in northern Italy, and Generals Moreau and Jourdan were pushing steadily through Germany, right to Vienna's doorstep. The French seemed unstoppable. 
And so, Alvinci's colleagues on the Imperial War Council convinced him to take the field once again. He was among the most respected figures in the Austrian military, but Alvinci had no direct experience of the war against the armies of the Revolution. He would soon learn that it bore little resemblance to fighting Frederick the Great. Vienna did not give him much to work with. Austria was facing a manpower crunch. Four years of war with France had taken a toll, and the Habsburgs had security concerns in the east as well. Their newly conquered Polish territories were restive, the old rivalry with Prussia was heating up again, and of course, there were always the Ottoman Turks to worry about. So, even as the French pushed alarmingly close to Vienna in the west, the Austrians had to keep over 80,000 soldiers on the other side of their empire, just to make sure their other enemies didn't get any ideas. And now, northern Italy had swallowed up two whole field armies in less than a year. This new third field army would number nearly 50,000 men, but Vienna was beginning to scrape the bottom of the barrel. Some units came from the remnants of Wurmser's army, but most were green recruits, commanded by inexperienced officers. Not only were these new units hastily trained and untested, they were recruited largely from the new Habsburg conquests in Poland, which meant their loyalty and commitment were suspect. Alvinci didn't have much time to whip his new army into shape. Winter was fast approaching. The Alpine passes into Italy were becoming more treacherous by the day. But the garrison of Mantua could not afford to wait out the cold season. The sooner Alvinci could bring his army into action, the better. Napoleon was worried. He knew another offensive was coming, and he wasn't sure he had the strength to stop it. The Army of Italy had been worn down by nearly a year of intense campaigning with few supplies. Nearly 15,000 men were in hospital or on sick leave. No reinforcements had been sent to replace the casualties suffered in the Castiglione or Bassano phases of the campaign. With the addition of Wurmser's army to the garrison of Mantua, Bonaparte needed to devote even more troops to man the siege lines, 9,000 at a minimum. Another 10,000 men were needed to defend Trent, France's main foothold on the Austrian side of the Alps, which commanded the approaches into Italy from the north. A few thousand more were required to occupy the cities and towns of northern Italy and protect the supply routes back to France. All told, Napoleon was left with a field army of only around 19,000 men. When Alvinci came down out of the Alps, the army of Italy would be outnumbered more than two to one. Bonaparte begged Paris for more troops. Quote, I leave you to think. If I do not have reinforcements, how shall I be able to resist the emperor this winter? If the preservation of Italy be dear to you, citizen directors, send me aid. End quote. Unfortunately for the army of Italy, by the time that letter reached Paris, the directory had other concerns. As we discussed last time, Archduke Charles was beating the French back through southern Germany. All of France's efforts were focused on the Rhine. There was nothing to spare for Italy. With no aid from Paris forthcoming, Napoleon was pessimistic. He wrote in a letter, quote, The weakness and exhaustion of even the bravest men makes me fear the worst. We are perhaps on the eve of losing Italy. None of the expected help has arrived. 
I do my duty, and so does the army. My spirit is lacerated, but my conscience is clear. The army of Italy is exhausted, reduced to a handful of men. We are abandoned in the depths of Italy. Those brave men who remain see death as inevitable in the midst of such continual risks and with such slender forces. Perhaps the hour of death is tolling for the brave Augereau or the intrepid Messena, for Berthier, or for myself. End quote. You can always tell Napoleon is really worried when he starts laying on the melodrama. But, as he says in the quotation, he had little choice but to carry on and hope for the best. He kept his doubts private and wrote a proclamation to the army that struck a defiant tone. Quote, we have just one more effort to make, and Italy is ours. The enemy is, no doubt, more numerous than we are, but half his troops are new recruits. When he is beaten, Mantua must fall, and we will be masters of all. You will find sustenance on the road. Beat Alvinci, and I will answer for your future welfare. End quote. They were tired, hungry, and facing tremendous odds. But that was nothing new, and by now Napoleon's soldiers had learned to believe his promises. Bonaparte arranged the bulk of the army around the Adige River. You may remember the unfortunate Austrian Field Marshal Beaulieu had tried this tactic several times against Bonaparte, and failed miserably each time. But Napoleon planned his defense differently. He kept most of his army concentrated and in reserve rather than scattering them along the riverbank, as Beaulieu had. This would be a mobile defense, not a static one. Austrian plans had grown slightly more sophisticated since their last offensive. Alvinci was a professional strategist, not a hard-charging cavalry officer like Wurmser. He would lead the main body of the army, 29,000 men, in an invasion from the east, making a big show of force to attract as much attention as possible. Meanwhile, a second column of 18,000 men under Field Marshal Paul Davidovich would then strike at Trent, hopefully catching the French by surprise, taking the city, and then invading Italy from the north. If all went according to plan, Bonaparte would have no choice but to fight outnumbered and risk being caught between the two columns, or retreat and lift the siege of Mantua. Not a bad plan, but once again, the Austrians were dividing their forces, a strategy which Bonaparte had proven adept at exploiting. Alvinci's offensive began on November 1st. Napoleon was initially taken in by the ruse, but French scouts outside Trent discovered the size of Davidovich's column before any mistakes were made. But even without the element of surprise, the French were in trouble. The 10,000 men holding Trent were outnumbered nearly two to one. They were commanded by General Claude-Henri Vaubois. Vaubois was a veteran soldier, but he had only recently been promoted to the rank of full general, and was relatively untested in independent command. But at least they had the advantage of terrain. The city itself was a strong position, and if Trent fell, they could easily retreat into the mountain passes, ideal ground to hold off a larger attacking force. Remember, this was a generation obsessed with classical history. Every officer in the French army knew the story of the 300 Spartans holding the pass at Thermopylae against tens of thousands of Persians. 
Bonaparte ordered Vaubois to hold back the enemy as long as he could, so he could focus on Alvinci. He was still unsure exactly how he was going to neutralize a unified, concentrated force of 29,000 men with fewer than 20,000 troops of his own, but at least now he had a target. There were around 4,000 Republican troops under Massena shadowing Alvinci's advance. On November 5th, Napoleon ordered them to attack the enemy flank, hoping to throw the Austrians off balance, or at least slow things down. The French struck just after dawn the next day. Much of the combat was centered on the town of Bassano, where Napoleon had defeated Wurmser less than a month earlier. Massena attacked relentlessly, but could not make a dent against tenacious Austrian resistance. Sporadic fighting continued until well after nightfall. The Army of Italy suffered around 3,000 casualties, slightly more than the Austrians. That included General Lahn, who was lightly wounded. The Austrian units engaged in the battle included many of the worst in their army, those poorly trained, poorly equipped recruits from Poland. But they defied everyone's expectations by fighting quite well. Alvinci's army was no paper tiger. Both sides claimed victory at the Second Battle of Bassano, but the French attack had failed to make any headway. Alvinci's advance was not delayed, and the army of Italy was obliged to withdraw, leaving the Austrians in control of the battlefield. Despite his pronouncements, the results are clear. The Second Battle of Bassano was Napoleon's first defeat. Shortly after the battle, even worse news reached him from the north. Vaubois had given up Trent without a fight, Davidovich pursued the retreating French and engaged them outside the village of Caliano, where Vaubois was soundly defeated. He lost over 4,000 men, nearly half his division. Caliano was a complete rout. The surviving troops ran south in disorder. By the time Vaubois and his officers were able to restore order and gather up their scattered units, they were almost back in Italy so much for holding the mountain passes like King Leonidas. Upon hearing word of this disaster, Bonaparte rode north immediately to get the situation under control. He caught up with Vaubois near the town of Rivoli and delivered a now infamous rebuke to the troops. Quote, Soldiers, I am not satisfied with you. You have shown neither bravery, nor discipline, nor perseverance. You have allowed yourselves to be driven from positions where a handful of men could have stopped an army. Men of the 39th and 85th, you are not French soldiers. General, Chief of Staff, let it be inscribed on their colors. They no longer form a part of the Army of Italy. End quote. Napoleon wasn't blowing hot air. The 39th and 85th Line Demi Brigades, which made up the bulk of Vaubois' division, were officially stricken from the roles of the army. They remained under Napoleon's command. For all practical purposes, nothing had really changed. But this was a powerful symbolic gesture. As Napoleon was so fond of saying in his speeches, the men under his command were proud to call themselves soldiers of the Army of Italy. Bonaparte's propaganda campaign wasn't just about building up his own personal reputation. He had made that title really mean something. They read about their own exploits in the press, just as voraciously as the wider public. 
They were aware that everyone from Lisbon to Moscow and from Sicily to Scotland knew the army of Italy could march faster and fight harder than any force in Europe. They were proud of their reputation. The 39th and 85th had been a part of the army of Italy since the very beginning, and had struggled as hard as anyone to build that reputation. Stripping them of this title, which represented so many hardships and achievements, was a potent symbol of Napoleon's displeasure. It had the desired effect. Rather than dwelling on their defeat, the demoralized troops of the two punished brigades resolved to fight their way back into Napoleon's good graces. Bonaparte also reinforced the division with a few thousand fresh troops from his reserves. Vaubois' division was more or less back in fighting condition, but fortunately for the French, they would not be tested immediately. Davidovich was slow to follow up on his victory at Caliano. Even with these reinforcements, Davidovich still outnumbered the French by more than two to one. However, he badly misread the situation and believed he was now facing an enemy force of roughly equivalent size. Davidovich became cautious and slowed his advance to a crawl, just when he should have been sprinting to reach his rendezvous with Alvinci. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. Satisfied that the situation in the north was stabilized, Napoleon rode back south to deal with Alvinci. Despite Davidovich's sluggishness, the two Austrian columns were on pace to converge within a fortnight at Verona, a major city which lay at the crossroads of the two highways used by the Austrian columns. Bonaparte had to do something to prevent that from happening, or he would have little choice but to retreat and abandon the siege of Mantua, thus freeing up over 10,000 more enemy soldiers from the garrison. If that happened, the French forces in Italy would be outnumbered by nearly three to one, and there would be little Napoleon could do to prevent all his achievements of the last year from unraveling. On November 11th, he saw an opportunity to check the Austrian advance. The spearhead of Alvinci's column was an advance guard of around 4,500 men, led by General Prince von Hohenzollern Heckingen, a competent cavalry commander who had nearly captured Napoleon at the Battle of Borghetto a few months earlier. On the 11th, Napoleon learned the prince had rushed the advance guard far ahead of the main column to capture the town of Caldiero, the last major settlement along the road to Verona. Hohenzollern's scouts reported the French were on the run and would not fight for Verona, and so he threw caution to the wind and raced to seize the city as quickly as possible. But his scouts were mistaken. Bonaparte had nearly 13,000 men concentrated around Verona, waiting for an opening to counterattack. 
4,500 Austrian troops, isolated from the rest of their column, made a perfect target. The French attacked along Hohenzollern's left flank as he entered Caldiero. The Austrians were taken by surprise and fell back with heavy casualties. But night fell before Napoleon could capitalize on this success. The French continued the attack the next day, but the element of surprise was gone. The Austrians had taken up good positions along a ridge line and had spent the night digging in. Hohenzollern's men resisted bitterly. Compounding Napoleon's problems, a surprise storm rolled in from the northeast, blowing hail directly into the faces of the French attackers. Finally, around noon, against all odds, an attack by Massena's division succeeded in turning the Austrian right flank. If they could keep up the momentum, Hohenzollern's entire line would be in jeopardy, forcing the Austrians off the ridge line and into a dangerous withdrawal. For a few minutes, French victory looked tantalizingly close. Then, fresh Austrian brigades appeared on the horizon. The main body of Alvinci's column had finally caught up. Napoleon kept up the attack, hoping he might inflict some serious damage on Hohenzollern before these reinforcements could enter the battle, but it was too late. The French were pushed back until darkness stopped the action. Napoleon had been defeated again. At the Battle of Caldiero, the Army of Italy suffered nearly 2,000 casualties that they could ill afford. The Austrians lost around 1,500 men. Napoleon was despondent. He wrote to Josephine, warning her to abandon Milan and head west, in anticipation of losing the city to Alvinci. In a letter to the directors, he finally admitted just how bad the situation had become. Quote, I must give an account of the operations of the army since November 2nd. If it is not satisfactory, the army must not be blamed. Its exhaustion and inferiority in numbers alarm me. We are perhaps on the verge of losing Italy. End quote. Bonaparte began drawing up plans to abandon the entire eastern half of the Po Valley, putting all his troops back over the Adda River, which the army had crossed so dramatically at the Battle of Lodi. This would mean lifting the Siege of Mantua and giving up all the gains they'd made since May. That's episode 27 in Age of Napoleon podcast time. However, something changed his mind. In the north, Davidovich had still barely moved. There was still time for Napoleon to take one more swipe at Alvinci before the army of Italy slunk back over the Yada. As Napoleon put it in a letter to the directory, quote, In a few days we shall make one last effort. End quote. Even if Napoleon concentrated all his available units, Alvinci's force would be about 20% larger. But this was as good as the odds were going to get. If they waited until the two columns united and lifted the siege, the odds would be closer to three to one. The coming engagement would be the most important battle of the campaign so far. Everything hung in the balance. All of the conquests paid for with eight months of nearly superhuman effort and tens of thousands of lives. Every hardship and trial we've talked about since episode 24 of the show the fate of an entire region of Europe, and the millions of people who lived there. But even with all of that weighing on his shoulders, Napoleon did not play it safe. Boldness and unpredictability were two of his greatest strengths, and despite the stakes, he knew it was not the moment to abandon them. 
Bonaparte concentrated as many units as he dared, borrowing several thousand troops each from Vaubois in the north and from the siege lines outside Mantua. He then detached 3,000 men to garrison Verona, leaving him a field army of just under 20,000 men for this final effort. As he had in the past, Napoleon would use the army's speed to do the unexpected. Alvinci's left flank was protected by the Adige River. The Austrians could be reasonably confident in the Adige as a natural barrier. There were few crossing points in this region, and it was surrounded by swamps and soft, wet ground, poor terrain for a maneuvering army. An attack across the Adige would be the last thing Alvinci expected, and so that's what Bonaparte would do. The Army of Italy slipped out of Verona in the wee hours of November 14th, marched all day, and arrived at the village of Ronco just before dawn on the 15th. At Ronco, Bonaparte's engineers built a temporary wooden bridge, and the army crossed over to the far bank in the early hours of November 15th. In 24 hours, they had marched over 20 miles, or 33 kilometers, then built a bridge and conducted a major river crossing. The Army of Italy was now less than a day's march from the rear of the Austrian column, poised to capture their supply train and cut off their lines of communication. Alvinci would have no choice but to turn around and face Bonaparte before he could continue his advance on Verona. For the first time since the offensive began, Napoleon had seized the initiative. The Army of Italy was now in a small elbow of low, swampy land between the Adige and one of its smaller tributaries, the Alpone. At first glance, this was terrible ground to fight a battle, but Napoleon knew what he was doing. The French would have their backs to the rivers, but the Austrians were now forced to come to them over the bad, swampy ground. This was a confined space, traversable only by narrow causeways, which would prevent either side from deploying all their forces at once, thus mitigating Alvinci's advantage in numbers. This was a favorite stratagem of Julius Caesar, one of Napoleon's idols, which I don't think is a coincidence. While the bulk of the Army of Italy pushed northwest, expanding the bridgehead over the Adige, Napoleon sent Augereau's division of around 8,000 men east. They were to cross the Alpone River into the town of Arcole, then hook north to cut off Alvinci's main line of communication, and hopefully intercept his supply train. Unfortunately for the French, Alvinci had the good sense to garrison Arcole with two infantry battalions and several cannon. This force was probably under 2,000 men. Augereau outnumbered them by more than four to one. But they were veteran Croatian light infantry, some of Alvinci's best troops, and they were defending a long, narrow bridge. Overwhelming numbers don't count for much when an entire engagement comes down to a single rickety wooden span, not even wide enough for a dozen men to stand abreast. Augereau's men had to approach the bridge at Arcole along an elevated causeway, rendering them totally exposed to enemy fire. As they approached, the French advance bogged down. The men huddled along the causeway, taking cover from the enemy cannon. After a few moments of respite, General Lon, freshly released from the hospital, rose to lead a charge on the bridge, and was promptly wounded again, for the second time in nine days. Once again, the volume of Austrian fire proved too much, and the assault fizzled out before reaching the bridge. 
General Ogero then took things into hand. Without warning, he grabbed the flag of one of his grenadier companies and dashed forward. After about 15 paces, he turned around, totally alone, seemingly indifferent to the Austrian fire, and shouted back at his men, quote, Grenadiers, come and seek your colors, end quote. Inspired by their commander's daring, the company let out a war cry and ran into action. Grenadiers specialized in this type of maneuver, and buoyed by Ogero's presence, they made it to within a few yards of the bridge. But their casualties were too high, and that narrow span was too daunting. The Grenadiers, too, lost momentum and ducked for cover. Shortly after this third approach failed, Napoleon himself arrived on the scene. He expected to see Ogero's men crossing into Arcole. You can imagine his alarm when he found them instead pinned down in a swamp, facing tough opposition. Something drastic had to be done before the French lost the initiative entirely. And so, Napoleon too seized a flag and rushed out in front of the army, with his aides scurrying after him. Unlike Augereau, Bonaparte didn't stop. He made straight for the bridge without so much as a look back. The challenge to the Army of Italy was clear. Either they could follow him, or live with the shame of watching their beloved chief gunned down while they cowered in the mud. They were far too proud, and too attached to Bonaparte, to let that happen. Napoleon must have breathed a private sigh of relief when he heard the roar of hundreds of men leaping up from behind the causeway to follow him onto the bridge. The French didn't bother forming up into an assault column, the narrow confines of the bridge would force them into formation, whether they liked it or not. This was a mad dash. Maneuvers like this succeed on speed and audacity alone. As they approached the bridge, one of Napoleon's closest friends and aides, Jean-Baptiste Muron, was shot in the chest and killed instantly, right by Bonaparte's side. Now that he had successfully inspired the men to charge, his remaining aides realized this adventure with the flag had served its purpose and was now too risky to continue. They began to manhandle their chief away from the head of the charge. But Bonaparte's blood was up, and he shrugged them off. Napoleon's aides had to tackle him to get him out of the line of fire, and the whole staff ended up in a heap at the bottom of a drainage ditch, just short of the bridge. Spirits were high as Augereau's men set foot on the bridge, but they were now crammed into an impossibly narrow space, raked with fire from the Austrian line on the far bank. They suffered horrific casualties. According to eyewitnesses, they made it about 55 paces before losing momentum and falling back. It was a stunning display of courage, but there would be no crossing at Arcalay that day. No amount of audacity could overcome the fundamental strength of the enemy position. On the other side of the battlefield, the rest of the army had also encountered unexpected enemy resistance. They were fighting on open ground and so had fared much better than Augereau's division, but this had slowed the pace of their advance. Napoleon was not happy with the day's action. The army had pulled off the preliminary maneuver of the battle brilliantly, but nothing since then had gone according to plan. As night fell, he ordered the army to fall back over the Adige to rest, regroup, and reassess. November 15th had been a disappointing day for the French, but their failures were mitigated by a serious Austrian mistake. 
By that afternoon, Alvinci had ample reports indicating a large French force had crossed the Adige in his rear, likely most, if not all, of Napoleon's field army. However, he also had relatively recent reports indicating that Bonaparte was near Verona, and he simply refused to believe the entire French army could have hooked around from the front to the rear of his column, totally unnoticed, in only 24 hours, and then launched a major operation through an impassable swamp. For all his talents, Alvinci's experience came from an earlier era. He had not yet witnessed the mobility of a Republican army firsthand. Out of caution, he halted the advance on Verona, but only sent around 4,000 reinforcements to bolster the Austrian forces around Arcole. And so, in effect, Napoleon was given a do-over. The Austrians had been reinforced slightly and concentrated more of their forces, but as the next day dawned, the basic disposition of the two sides was the same. Unfortunately for the Army of Italy, Bonaparte's usual tactical creativity seems to have deserted him he would squander this second chance. The French crossed over the Adige again early in the morning of the 16th, and attempted almost the same plan that had failed on the 15th. Once again, Napoleon attempted to expand the bridgehead across the Adige, and to cross the Alpone at Arcole. Massena was quite successful in expanding the bridgehead. The Austrian forces in this sector of the battlefield were outnumbered and poorly led. The French pushed them back more than five miles, or eight kilometers, by nightfall. However, on the other side of the battlefield, Augereau's division had no such luck crossing the Alpone. It's hard to imagine a better defensive position than the bridge at Arcole. Any attack had to approach over that exposed causeway, raked by fire from determined defenders with artillery. Then, running the narrow gauntlet of the bridge, somewhere around 400 feet, or 120 meters, then, if they survived all that, it would be time to face two veteran Austrian battalions with the bayonet. I'm not sure any 18th century army could have pulled it off. On November 16th, Augereau's division didn't manage to get any closer to Arcole. Despite Massena's success, there was no point in the French spending the night in the swamp, and so, after dusk, the army of Italy retreated back over the Adige for a second time leaving a single brigade to hold the bridgehead on the far bank. Now, Bonaparte was in serious trouble. This counterattack was brilliant in its conception, and the preliminary stages had been executed perfectly. But, to paraphrase the great Prussian field marshal Moltke the Elder, no plan survives contact with the enemy. Napoleon's failure of imagination led the army to waste two whole days and hundreds of lives, banging their heads against an impregnable enemy strongpoint. November 17th would be do or die. The window of opportunity before Alvinci and Davidovich could unite their forces was closing. Wurmser could break out of Mantua at any moment. More Austrian reinforcements arrived around Arcole by the hour, and by now Alvinci had ordered his supply train to fall back east. Before long, it would be out of reach. Fortunately for the Army of Italy, a report from a subordinate seems to have rekindled Napoleon's inspiration. On the evening of the 16th, he was informed by his chief of engineers that there was a location south of Arcole where the Alpone River was narrow enough to build a temporary bridge. Bonaparte ordered it done and settled in for a night of planning. The engineers worked feverishly in the dark, and by dawn the bridge was ready. 
The Austrians had gotten the better of the fighting so far, but their commanders were still struggling to react to the sudden shift in initiative. The second day of fighting had left no doubt that something significant was afoot around Arkelay, but Alvinci remained racked with indecision. To the north, Davidovich was still busy shadowboxing with imaginary French units. His column had made barely any progress since their victory at Caliano. They would not arrive at Verona any time soon. Alvinci's column would have to deal with Bonaparte themselves. By nightfall on November 16th, after two days of hard fighting, Alvinci still had less than half of his troops concentrated on the battlefield. The Austrians outnumbered the French more than two to one in this theater of the war. And yet, at Arcolet, they were fighting a major battle outnumbered. With the benefit of hindsight, Alvinci clearly should have answered Bonaparte's bold maneuver with a little boldness of his own. He could have rushed the rest of his column to Arcolet and counterattacked with superior numbers. Or, with Bonaparte distracted, he could have taken the rest of his column on an all-out dash for Mantua. Instead, Alvinci settled on a much more timid course of action. The forces around Arcolet would continue to engage the French, and the bulk of the column would fall back east, along the same highway they'd taken into Italy. This wasn't a completely foolish maneuver. It would enable him to safeguard his baggage train and lines of communication, and would bring his column closer to the action at Arcolet, so he could more easily dispense reinforcements if necessary. Alvinci had fought with decisiveness when he had the initiative, and the campaign was going according to plan. But now that Bonaparte had turned the tables, his confidence seems to have vanished. He was now playing it safe rather than pushing for his objectives. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. The morning of November 17th started badly for the French. The Austrians greeted the dawn with an attack on the French bridgehead over the Adige. They used a crude but time-honored tactic against temporary military bridges, throwing junk and debris into the river, which the current then slammed into the pontoons, until one of them was finally knocked loose, disabling the bridge. This left only one French demi-brigade holding the bridgehead, isolated from the rest of the army until the bridge could be repaired. That single brigade, probably under 2,000 men, fought with their backs to the river for three harrowing hours, while the engineers struggled with the rogue pontoon. They may have been cut off, but this was the 18th Light Demi Brigade, considered among the best in the Army of Italy. They had fire support from every cannon in the army, lined up along the far bank. They successfully held off an entire Austrian division. Once the bridge was repaired, the rest of Massena's division stormed across the Adige in a counterattack. They made good progress at first, but quickly lost momentum and began to fall back. The Austrians surged forward in pursuit, but they had been taken in by another feigned retreat. As the Austrians rushed along an exposed stretch of causeway, the fleeing French suddenly turned around, and concealed units sprung up along each flank. Several thousand Austrians were caught totally exposed and disorganized, 
After a few volleys, the survivors surrendered. This devastating turn of events cut the heart right out of the Austrian efforts in this sector of the battlefield. Their remaining units were too depleted and demoralized for anything more than a fighting retreat. They fell back, and Massena hounded them well into the afternoon. On the other side of the battlefield, General Augereau was leading his division in a third attempt to capture Arcole, but this time he was already over the Alpone, bypassing that bloody bridge, which must have been a great relief to his soldiers. The Austrians caught wind of this maneuver and redeployed several thousand veteran troops to stand in his way. Augereau's men had the advantage in numbers, but they faced spirited resistance and had to advance across swampy ground that sucked the boots right off of men's feet. The advance was in danger of being bogged down, quite literally. Most of Napoleon's forces were already committed, he had little to send in the way of help, so he bluffed. Bonaparte ordered a group of his bodyguards, the guides, to ride around the flank of the Austrian line, making as much noise as possible, blowing bugles, shouting fake orders, and galloping around like they were the advanced scouts of an entire cavalry division. This was a pretty feeble ruse. This group of guides was only a few dozen men at most. But it worked. Believing they were about to be overrun by a cavalry charge from the rear, the Austrians beat a hasty retreat back to Arcole, with Augereau in hot pursuit. While the garrison of the town rushed to prepare their defenses for Augereau's impending attack, a brigade from Massena's division appeared out of nowhere from the other direction. Before the Austrians had time to react, Massena's men had already stormed over that bloody, unconquerable bridge and were sprinting for the town. Caught between the advancing forces of Augereau and Massena, the defenders of Arcole saw little choice but to flee. At last, after three days of bloody trials, French soldiers swarmed into Arcole late in the afternoon of November 17th. Upon hearing word of this setback, Alvinci ordered the remaining Austrian forces engaged in the battle to fall back to the highway, where they would rejoin the rest of the column in a retreat east, back the way they came, into Austrian territory. Napoleon and the Army of Italy had done it. The third Austrian attempt to relieve Mantua would soon be over. The Battle of Arcole had been one of the bloodiest battles of the campaign so far. Over nearly three full days of fighting, the Army of Italy suffered around 4,500 casualties. No fewer than eight French generals were killed or wounded in the fighting. That's a staggering number, a testament to the culture of leading from the front in the revolutionary armies, which was further emphasized by Napoleon. Alvinci's force lost just over 6,000 men, including a field marshal. The Army of Italy was completely exhausted, including Napoleon himself. He wrote back to Paris, quote, I am so overcome with fatigue that it is impossible for me to narrate the movements that preceded the Battle of Arcole, which has just decided the fate of Italy. I must admit, I did not find my phalanxes to be the same soldiers of Lodi, Millesimo, and Castiglione, Fatigue and the absence of the gallant fellows who have fallen have deprived them of that impetuosity which would have led me to expect the capture of Alvinci and the greater part of his army. End quote. Even flush with victory, Napoleon felt the need to remind the directors that he was near the limits of his resources and desperately needed reinforcements. 
He could blame his men's fatigue and the absence of gallant fellows all he wanted, but Arcole was far from Napoleon's finest moment as a tactician. The overall strategy of crossing the Adige to attack Alvinci's rear was brilliant, but once he made contact with the enemy, Bonaparte seems to have run out of ideas. Had he not wasted two whole days throwing away lives in the useless assaults on the bridge at Arcole, the victory could have been much greater, and hundreds of French casualties could have been avoided. Tactically speaking, Arcole probably ranks among Napoleon's worst performances of the entire campaign. But history has a sense of humor. Even today, the name of this relatively sloppy battle rings out as one of the great, iconic victories of Napoleon's early career. Cities and towns all over France have streets named Arcole. Paris has a road, a metro station, and, ironically, a bridge named after the battle. There are good reasons for this. When you zoom out, stop looking at the gory details of the battle, and think about the broader picture, Arcole really was a stunning strategic achievement. The exhausted, ill-supplied Army of Italy had succeeded against overwhelming odds and secured the amazing achievements of the preceding year. In 1810, near the zenith of his powers, Napoleon ordered a monument built on the battlefield, which includes the following inscription, quote, To Napoleon, head of the French army, in honor of the victory which he wrested from the enemy here, a victory which was to bring him fame wherever he went, Italy restored to its brilliant destiny and to the rights that will return it to its former glory, end quote. I think that's a pretty good summary of the French view of the battle. Arcole was also an important chapter in Napoleon's growing cult of personality. We went into this quite a bit during the episode on the Battle of Lodi, so I won't rehash this topic too much. But if you'll recall, a specific incident from Lodi became lodged in the public consciousness. The image of Bonaparte, flag in hand, leading his men across a bridge under heavy fire, into the teeth of the enemy bayonets. Napoleon's PR machine had worked overtime to publicize this particular moment. It encapsulated all the virtues he wanted people to associate with his public character. Boldness, patriotism, self-sacrifice, and martial prowess. Napoleon leading his men across the bridge caught people's imaginations for a reason. It is an inherently dramatic, compelling story. And now, that same scene had reoccurred at Arcole an even bigger battle with much higher stakes. Sure, this time the attack had failed, but that image of Napoleon charging across a bridge with a flag was now firmly cemented as legend. This particular image of Napoleon would be one of the most reproduced of the era. Sometimes the artist specified that he was depicting either Arcole or Lodi, but sometimes it could have been either. It didn't really matter. The public had now come to understand that leading daring charges across bridges was simply something Napoleon did, a part of his character. And that kind of reputation is priceless for an ambitious young general. We've already gone a bit long in this episode, so I think we'll leave things there for now. Before we go, I'd like to talk about the show itself a little bit. I try to keep this type of chatter to a minimum. I know you guys tune in to hear a story and learn about history, not follow my struggles creating the show. But we passed a small milestone last month, and I'd like to share it with you. 
The Age of Napoleon was downloaded or streamed over 50,000 times in July of 2018. I'd always hoped the show would eventually develop a big audience, but I never imagined we'd reach a number like that after only 31 episodes. According to people who know about these things, most new podcast listeners come from word of mouth, so thank you to everyone who has recommended the show to a friend or shared it on social media. It may not seem like much, but apparently all those testimonials have added up to a lot. I'd like to especially thank everyone who has contributed financially. I do everything myself, research, writing, editing, and audio production. It's pretty much a full-time job, and keeping it profitable enough to continue at that pace is a constant struggle. I wouldn't be able to do it without contributions from listeners. It is a tremendous privilege to be able to share these stories with the world. Thank you for making it possible. If you'd like to chip in, you can make a monthly pledge at patreon.com slash ageofnapoleon. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash ageofnapoleon. I also recently set up a page on coffee.com that accepts one-time donations. You can find that at ko-fi.com slash the age of Napoleon podcast. Once again, ko-fi.com slash the age of Napoleon podcast. My impulse is to pronounce that ko-fi, but there you have it. I'll put links to both pages in the episode description and post them on Twitter and Facebook as well. Lastly, please leave us a good review on iTunes if you haven't already. I'm still fuzzy on the details, but apparently that helps new listeners find the show. Thank you for bearing with me. That's all for now. Next time, we'll pick up right where we left off and look at the strategic implications of the Battle of Arcalais. Then it will be time to talk about yet another Austrian offensive, their fourth attempt to relieve the garrison of Mantua. Until then, thanks for listening. Hello everyone, my name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers Podcast. I want to invite you to join me on the voyages and journeys of the most famous explorers in the history of the world. These are the thrilling and captivating stories of Magellan, Shackleton, Lewis and Clark, and so many other famous and not-so-famous adventures from throughout history. Go to explorerspodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's the Explorers Podcast.